practice that this morning, so I didn't say good morning by accident. I love that song right there. I don't know if you guys ever heard it before. And I don't know if you guys are into boxing, but one of the things I look forward to before a boxing match is wondering what song someone's going to come out to. <clears throat> but I'll just do it for that reason. The reason why I wanted to start out with this song, Doxology, um, is really for three reasons. And it's because doxology ought to be the purpose of us gathering together. And doxology should be the end of the hearing of the preached word. Second, if you heard this song, it sounds much different than what you might normally hear in church settings. So I wanted to play this song because doxology should not be boring. And it shouldn't follow some earthly standard. Rather, doxology is to be dynamic, joyful, constant. And yes, it should even be loud. And then finally, doxology is the focus of our text today, which is going to be Psalm 47. So if you want to start turning there, you can. Just to give you a definition of doxology, it is to speak words of praise to God, primarily for his work in creation and redemption. Martin Luther said it plainly when he said the Christian ought to be a living doxology. And Charles Spurgeon similarly stated... A child of God should be a visible beatitude for joy and happiness and a living doxology for gratitude and adoration. So I just want us to keep this in mind as we stand together, open up our Bibles to Psalm 47, and let's hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a song of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet, saying praises to God, saying praises. Saying praises to our king, saying praises. For God is the king of all the earth, saying praises with a song. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shield of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for an opportunity um, to come out here and, and to visit and to see all these wonderful faces again. We're looking forward to being here today, and not just for me to bring forth your word, but just to catch up and see the people that we've been missing for two months. Lord, thank you for what this church have been, uh, has been for us, um, for me personally and for my family. But I pray that you continue to grow this church and you will continue to bless this church and use this church um, within each other and even outside of these four walls. Lord, I pray that you would help me today to preach your word with boldness. I pray that you would help me preach your word faithfulness, with faithfulness um, and in truth. Lord, I pray that you will be magnified and you will be lifted um, just as the text teaches us here today. First, in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. You take your seats. I once read a story in an Our Daily Bread devotional that I believe is going to help us to really focus in on the importance 
and the great privilege of what the psalmist is calling us here to today in Psalm chapter 47. It reads, Louis Albert Banks tells of an elderly Christian man, a fine singer, who learned that he had cancer of the tongue and that surgery was required. In the hospital, after everything was ready for the operation, the man said to the doctor, are you sure that I will never be able to sing again? The surgeon found it difficult to answer this question, so he just shook his head no. The patient then asked if he could sit up for a moment. I've had many good times singing the praises of God, he said, and now you tell me that I could never sing again. I have one song that will be my last. It will be of gratitude and praise to God. And there in the doctor's presence, the man sang softly the words of Isaac Watts' hymn. I'll praise my maker while I have rest. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler power. My days of praise shall never be passed, while life and thought and being last, or immortality endures. Have you ever thought for the moment of the tragedy it would be if you lost your voice, or if you lost your ability to sing? There's some people around here, like myself, who can't hold a note, can't sing a tune, can't stay on key, and some of you guys are probably thinking that's probably not such a bad idea if DC lost your voice. But what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Like if you would lose your voice and you can no longer sing, or take it even further if you can no longer speak, what are the things that you would think of that you would no longer be able to do? Probably think about conversations with your family, going to sporting events with your friends, and, and cheering on your team, or just the laughs and the jokes that we often have together and you would no longer be able to do those things. But how long do you think it would take you to realize that you would never be able to sing praises to God again? Do you think it would be the first thing, the fifth thing? Do you think it would take you days or weeks before you even realize you'd never be able to sing Him praises? But how much more of a tragedy is it to have a voice and out of the fear of man, out of tradition, out of pride, allow those things to muzzle your praise. Something to think about, right? The exegetical context of our passage is simple, which is the Korahites is calling all peoples to join together and praise God as king. So the main idea for us to take away today is also simple, which is all of mankind, from the rulers of the earth all the way down to the regular everyday person, Believing or non-believing are to recognize Yahweh as God and king over them. Therefore, he is worthy of our submission and he is worthy of our praise. And so whether we're to understand this as a psalm that was written by the sons of Korah, or some people believe it was a psalm written for the sons of Korah to perform, what we know without a doubt is this psalm was written to do two things, and that was to unite and ignite Unite people and ignite praise from people, from all peoples. But more than that, it is Christocentric as well. What we see in this following Hebrew parallelism is we have to work from the outer verses and then we get to the central verse 5 where we find the main purpose of the text. And this is what we walk away with. Christ has united both Jew and Gentile together, exercising his sovereign rule as king of kings. And together we have been called to surround him and exalt him with continual, unceasing, never-ending praise because it is him who is seated on his holy throne. 
That was a run-on sentence, but that's my entire sermon in a nutshell. And I'm just going to spend the rest of this time trying to unpack that. So the title of my sermon today is The Triumphal Ascension of Jesus. And the outline is also going to be the three main points I want you guys to take away. And we're going to follow the Hebrew poetic form as well as I walk through the text. We're going to be going from one to nine. We're going to be going to the outer verses to the central verses. So first we're going to start with verse one and nine. And that first point is going to be praise Jesus who reconciled Jew and Gentile to God. Verses 1 and 9. Then we're going to get to verses 2 through 4 and 7 through 8. And that point is, praise Jesus our King, who has delivered us and given us an imperishable inheritance. And then finally, we're going to end with verses 5 and 6. And the third point and the final point, and call to action I should say, is praise Jesus who has ascended and is now seated on his holy throne. So point number one, praise Jesus who reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God. Verses one and nine. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. When we look at the text right away, we see the reach of this call from the sons of Korah. This invitation here in these opening and ending verses revealing to us who the audience of this psalm is, which is all peoples. We see the phrase all peoples in verse 1, and there are those who think that all peoples only consist of those who are of the 12 tribes of Israel. But when we get to verse 9, we see that there is another group of people along with those who are the people of God, and they are referred to as the princes of the people. Making this an inclusive and a universal call that is not only cross-cultural as in all peoples, but is also a call to both the lowly and those of high esteem. This is a call that arrests the attention of both the Jew and the Gentile, of both the slave and the free, of both the rich and the poor, and even of the politician and the regular everyday individual. These earthly rulers known to be the shields of the earth, due to their responsibility to protect people, they have been established by God to carry out moral justice, and so they're called the shields of the earth. They might think otherwise, right? They might think different about what their purpose is, and I think we see the wisdom in the separation of church and state when it's rightly understood and it's rightly applied and upheld. But at the same time, the psalmist is proudly implying with no hesitation that there is no separation, and there is no jurisdiction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We see stuff like this in Psalm 72, 11, which says, May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. So do you see this here in verse 9? These earthly rulers, these kings, these mere mortal men that wield the sword actually belong to God. They are not gods unto themselves. Regardless of what the politicians in Washington do these days, right? Regardless of how they act. Before God, they are no different than the common folk. They, too, are subjected to the authority of God. We see this in the call to all peoples. What we see is the Lord is the true superior figure. However, it means much more than that. There's something redemptive happening here. And it's even one of the reasons that we find in the psalm that results in our praise. But before we get there, let us consider the nature of the call. Imagine how this psalm would read. If the sons of Korah took this modern-day approach to evangelism, imagine the way the psalm would read if the sons of Korah took a politically correct 
approach to their invitation, like timid, like suggestive. But this is not a suggestion, right? There's, there's no negotiating here in the text. It's not something that you can, can hear and think that this is something you can put off to another time. But instead, here in these verses, there's without a doubt a sense of urgency and importance regarding this special and joyous occasion. This is more than mere excitement on the part of the sons of Korah. All peoples are not just being persuaded, but commanded to action. So while it's true to say that what humanity is called to do here in Psalm 47 is a universal and it's a transcendent call, it is also a universal and transcendent command to action. And so first, you have the reach of the call to all peoples. Second, you have the nature of the call, which is an urgent invitation and command. And this is going to come out again when we get to verse 6. But more importantly, we have the purpose of the call. What the psalmist has in mind here is a collective celebration that doesn't just simply involve the Jew and the Gentile. But as we see in the wording of point number one, it assumes a future glory in which both the Jew and the Gentile are united together in the harmony of praise. We see this in what the sons of Korah are calling the people to do, which is the opening words of our song for the purpose of the final words in our song. In verse one, all peoples are called to clap their hands and to shout to God with loud songs of joy. And verse nine ends with the result of this praise, or with, yeah, with this praise, which is, he is highly exalted. And his exaltation being far above mankind and our temporary thrones and dominion. As one commentary put it, the most distinguished and noble of the Gentiles shall come and worship God even as the pious Jews. We see this in the clapping of hands, which is the result of what we're going to see in our second heading, namely the, the recognition of God's kingship, his protection, and his benevolence. But first, let's look again to verse 1. Let's actually look at the opening words. Did you notice there that the clapping does not come after the singing? The first thing in the text, the clapping actually precedes the singing. Isn't this interesting when you consider the church in our more reformed and confessional context? This does not mean that we should not clap after we sing. However, clapping is not the conclusion of our joyful song. It is independent of our singing. It is an act of praise in and of itself. Clapping is an action that does at least two things. It, it, calls, uh, it calls attention away from yourself, and it's calling attention to the person that's being applauded. In this case, we're talking about God, right? And second, it's a display of strong approval for the person being applauded. Not that God needs our approval, but he demands our acknowledgement of who he is and what he's done. In our passage, Acknowledgement of and honor to the God who has gone up and is seated as king of all the earth and in his triumphant victory uniting humanity. However, we all know, and maybe we've been there, certain denominations and traditions may be fearful of being too charismatic, fearful of being too emotional, rarely or never clap before or after the same, robbing God of praise. And I think many of us need to repent of that. The first thing I did when I read this passage is I repented myself. How often do we clap? Just clapping to God if it's not at the end of the song. It's not something that we do too often. But not only are the sons of Korah calling all people to clap their hands, but also to shout loud songs of joy to God. Yeah. 
Not only are we to celebrate God with our hands, but we are also to celebrate God with our voice. We see this in Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. But notice what it didn't say. Make a boring noise or an emotionless noise, right? We're not to sing boring or emotionless songs. Not just any kind of loud shouting and singing, but joyful shouting and singing. A voice of joy, a jubilant cry, cries of joy. This is without a doubt an expression of emotion that can be translated in a variety of ways, and it's all depending on what is it that's causing this outburst. It can be a war cry, a cry of lament, or a joyful celebration as in our song 47 today. But the overarching sense of the word within the context of our passage is an overwhelming, triumphant, joy-filled eruption of celebratory praise in harmony to God. The Lexian Bible Dictionary says this about joy, that it is closely related to gladness and happiness. Although joy is more a state of being than an emotion, a result of choice, one of the fruits of the Spirit, having joy is a part of being Christian. So I have to ask you today, Christian, do you have joy? And if not, why not? And I hope if you don't have joy that you find many reasons today in this sermon to be joyful and to recognize that we have all the reasons to never lose heart and to always have our joy, no matter what it is that we're going through. And so maybe you have joy, but you're easily bothered when a brother or sister gets a little too charismatic and worship. Who else has been there? Is it just me? There's a story of an old-fashioned man from the country, and he visited this great city temple. And as the eloquent minister drove home some great truth, the man shouted, Praise the Lord! Whereupon an usher touched him on the arm, and he said, Be quiet, we cannot praise the Lord in this church. May God have mercy on both the pastor and the church. While joy may primarily be a state of being in God, it's not an emotionless state of being. It's not an emotionless state of existence, is it? How can we think of the goodness of God in Christ and not be filled with emotion? How can we gather as the people of God every Sunday, ransomed in Christ, rescued from the wrath to come, and now seated with our Savior in the heavenly places and not be filled with joyful emotion? While joy is a state of being in Christ, our emotions play a significant role in our praise. After all, an act of praise without joy is exactly what God does not want. It's not even worship at all. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Which simply means you cannot only worship God with your mind. You cannot only worship God with your heart. But there's a balance. You must worship God with the head and the heart. And sure, you know all the right things about God, right? You desire to divide his word rightly. However, with a tragedy that many of us have, so to speak, mastered the Bible, we've become so refined in our apologetic, we've become so learned in the scriptures, only for worship to become a, become a stoic and academic exercise. So yes, do good Bible study. Hold firmly and unapologetically to the essentials. But with that knowledge, worship God as a proud recipient and witness to his work in your life, there's a big difference. 
This passage is pointing us to the work of Christ in justifying, sanctifying, and reconciling sinners to God. He brought them together. That's what he said in John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. For in Christ, the rulers of this world join in the chorus as they're united with the children of Abraham, clapping and shouting a continual, unceasing, never-ending, joy-filled praise to God. This is the realization of the mystery that was hidden in Christ. And I love the fact that the sons of Korah are not waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb to see this take place. Rather, what the Lord has accomplished has set the stage right now on earth as it will be in heaven. So point number one, praise Jesus who reconciled Jew and Gentile to God. Point number two, praise Jesus our King who has delivered us and given us an imperishable inheritance. Verses two through four and seven through eight. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a song. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. As the psalmist is calling all peoples to clap and to shout praises to God in verses 1 and 9, when we get to verse 2, the psalmist actually begins to focus on who this God is. Just in the opening two verses, actually, we see God identified in four ways. In verse 1, we see this simple Hebrew word, El, which is one of the more popular words for the title God. You often find this word connected with other words, which not only tell us who he is, but it tells us our connectedness to him. Some examples are El Shaddai, God Almighty. You have Israel, one who wrestles with God or strives with God. Or Emmanuel, the with us God. And even in our text, in verse 2, we have another example, which is El Elyon, which is God Most High. Using this poetic parallel structure, the psalmist is compounding these titles and these names that speak to the grandeur, it speaks to the glory, the supremacy, and the importance of who God is. Verse 1, he is Lord, all cats, he is the Most High, and he is a great king over all the earth. And again, in verse 7a. For God is the king of all the earth. There's other translations that give us a little bit of a better sense of what the psalmist is getting at as, as they're compounding these names and titles. The Net Bible says, for the sovereign Lord is all-inspiring. Or the Lexham Bible says it even better, for Yahweh, most high, is awesome. By now, we all know that when we see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it's referring to the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. Oftentimes, when you look at the Greek Septuagint, this name is translated, um, well, when you look at the New Testament, it's translated as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, right? He's the most high God. He's the only true God. That's the God that's spoken of here in this song. Or as Yahweh says of himself in Isaiah 43, 10, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, puts it this way in his, in his chapter, which focuses on the names of God. This is what he says about Yahweh. Yahweh is the king of glory, who is surrounded by angelic hosts, who rules heaven and earth in the interest of his people, who, and who receives glory from all his creatures. And this is exactly what we see in our song today, highlighting his kingship, his protection, 
and his benevolence. The kingship of God. He is king of all the earth. This is a major distinction from the false gods. This is a major distinction from lowercase g gods. And even earthly rulers, they all have a little, they have limited influence and little power over specific people groups, over specific places, and at specific times in history. But what we see in verse 8 is God reigns over the nations and he's sitting on his holy throne. There is no end and there is no border that confines his rule or his reign. And unlike the wicked leaders of the nations, the kingdom of God is ruled with justice. The kingdom of God is ruled with grace, mercy, and love, and all of it flows down from his holy throne, and it happens without partiality, which is why those who are outside are called in to join in the celebration. The, the sons of Korah has sent out this urgent invitation, calling all peoples to join in this chorus, to sing along with the seraphim who sang, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, the whole earth. But do you know there's professing Christians who limit the reign of Jesus? Who limit the reign of God? There's professing believers who reject the idea that God is involved in human affairs like the clockmaker theory, right? The man makes the clock, he designs it, he makes it, he winds the clock and it just ticks and he walks away as time just ticks on. Because man has free will, God is bound, he just hopes that you would choose to follow him. He's just sitting on his throne and he's watching, he's waiting, he's hoping, and no matter what he desires, his hands are just tied. But is that how a king operates? I don't think any of us believes that's the way a king operates. He doesn't just hope you will follow, you will follow. And if you don't, there's consequences for those who don't follow. So let's make an argument from the greater to the lesser, Proverbs 21.1. If the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, turning it wherever he wills. How much more is it a fact that he would reign even over those who are not of high esteem? And how exactly is it that God can demand this kind of praise? How is it that he can command this over all the earth? The answer is found in why verse 2 says he is to be feared. And that answer is given in verses 3 and 4. He subdued peoples under us. And nations under our feet, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, the protection of God. By remembering how the Lord has fulfilled his promises, the Lord has been their shield, protecting them against nations who sought to destroy them. The psalmist is proclaiming what God has done for them, which in his vengeance he has subdued their enemies, meaning the Lord has destroyed their enemies. Because of this, the enemies of God plot in vain, Psalm 2.1. Since it's the Lord that sends the nations running, brings affliction, plants his people, and sets them free, Psalm 44, 2. And we see all of this in Psalm 47 as well. So now the nations who were once a terror to the people of God have been knocked down beneath the feet of the people of God. We also see this in Psalm 18, where it's more personal than what we see in Psalm 47. As David is singing to the Lord, he's being delivered from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This is what verses 46 to 48 says. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me 
above those who rose against me, deliver me from the man of violence. And in our next heading, you'll see why I'm emphasizing the me here in this passage. But make no mistake, it's not for the purpose of bragging about themselves. The sons of Korah are saying this act of God subduing their enemies is yet another reason that they ought to praise God. Not for the purpose of them now ruling over their enemies. In the first heading, we see that their enemies have actually joined them in praising the Most High God. And now in this heading, we see that they are recognizing the Most High God as their king as well. And so perhaps the nations being placed under their feet by God is actually more redemptive than it is destructive. Does the Lord not tear down and build up? Perhaps it's figurative of them now watching over and caring for them as brothers and no longer viewing them as their enemies. I'm not the only one who thinks that. I love William Plummer's comment on this verse. He says this, quote, He seems to speak of such a subjugation of them as was for the good of the people subdued, because this is a matter of rejoicing to them, pointing to verse 1. And then he ends by looking to the greater realization where he says, This is true of all who bow and take the yoke of Christ. This verse is highlighting the fact that God is worthy of praise as king because he has been triumphant in subduing their enemies under them, where they now witness the work of God in the life of these people who once hated them, and they are glorifying God because of it. So we see here the kingship of God, the protection of God, and now the benevolence of God in verse 4. It says, he chose our heritage or our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. The Lord in his devotion, we know he's he's provided for Israel a special land. He's fulfilled his promise to them by giving them the land of Canaan. And it goes without saying that if the Lord has chosen something for you, it's way better than anything that you could ever choose for yourself. Although other things may look better or more pleasing to the eyes, what the Lord has for you will always be better for you. Always be better than anything you could ever choose for yourself. And so when we examine this word here, the Hebrew word that's translated as choose, it means to select, it means to desire, it means to prefer the best. But how often do we get upset when we don't get what we think we deserve The things that we want, the things that we claim to need, or the things that the world might consider the best things. How often do we grumble and complain about our life? In the age of social media, how easily we covet what others have. How often do you fail to be content with where God has you in this season, and by doing so, failing to give him the praise that he rightly deserves for what he has already done for you? How easily we miss All the good things that God has done just in a small season, a short season of trials or struggle. The sons of Korah trusted in the provision of the Lord. They took pride in it, and they worshipped him for it. And they took pride in the giver of the gift, not the gift. We see that in the result of their praise to God. However, this isn't the sole reason for their act of praise. Notice the Selah in the text. While some scholars say the exact meaning of the Hebrew term is unknown, it is said to be a musical or liturgical term referring to silence, pause, or an interlude. This is important because not only does the psalmist point the people to what God has done for them, they also point the people to the way God feels about them. They are loved by the Most High God. Loved by the one who is king over all the earth. 
No wonder there's a Selah in the text, right? Do you ever stop and think about the love that God has towards you? When you look yourself in the mirror, when you think about the recesses of your heart, the thoughts that you have, the struggles that you have, how many times you said, I'll never do that again. How many times you've been prideful and boastful, right? And God's seeing all things at one time, and he knows you're going to do it again, yet he still loves us. If that alone doesn't cause you to worship God, nothing will. Not only is his love shown in the destruction of our enemies, nor is it primarily demonstrated in temporal provisions, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the ultimate expression of the love of God is the sacrifice of his son in order to reconcile both Jew and Gentile. And this salvation being according to his great mercy, with which he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only that, but to an inheritance that is imperishable, an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, the ending of verse 7, which segues into our final heading, which is yet another call to sing praises. But before we get to the final heading, let me deal with the ending of verse 7, which says, sing praises with the song. The word translated in our text as song doesn't necessarily give us the proper understanding of the Hebrew word masculine. The issue here is the term masculine, while it is understood as a term or a word that's used to express praise to God, much like the word selah, its meaning is actually unknown. Most scholars are uncertain. The word is derived from a verb meaning to be prudent. It's a word that means to be wise. And we often find its range of application in a variety of English texts, which all, believe, I believe, speak to um, in some way to what a masculine is. And the NASB says a skillful song. The CSB says a song of wisdom. Both the King James Version and the Greek Septuagint says sing praises and make music with understanding. The point being is, we are not to sing mindless songs of praise, or repetitive and shallow songs of praise, or self-seeking, theology-lacking, heretical, saturated songs of praise. Neither should we be boxed in and held to some strict form of a regulative principle of worship. Rather, we are to freely praise God in skillful and celebratory, well-written and loud and joyful songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Which leads us to the final point and conclusion of our text. Praise Jesus who has ascended and is seated on his holy throne. Verses 5 and 6. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Saying praises to God, saying praises. Saying praises to our King, saying praises. All peoples have been gathered together, acknowledging God as King over all the earth. And now we see God has ascended to his holy throne as if being lifted on the praises of his people and carried on these chariots like he's riding on chariots of praise. And that praise echoes throughout eternity. That praise is to come from a place of gratitude. And this praise ultimately has marked the triumphant ascension of Jesus. This echo of praise is seen in verse 6 where we see the same verb, zimir, repeated four times, meaning... To make music, to chant, or to play instruments of worship to God, 
proclaiming his excellence. The, the repetition here is meant to magnify the purpose of the gathering together and the intensity and persistence and determination with which we ought to praise God. And so notice the possessive relational language here in verse 6, which is the result of the gratitude that ought to bring us back to unrelenting worship time and time again. Do you see the pride and the excitement as the sons of Korah press the issue even further? Sing praises to God, but not just sing praises to God. Sing praises to God who is our king. While there's this corporate element here, there's also a personal draw as well. And if it's not personal, if this relational element is missing, if the emotion is not involved and we're not driven by a sense of gratitude, God is not exalted and we're just making meaningless noise. And what a tragedy to know this happens every Sunday at churches all around the world. Too often we praise God for all the wrong reasons. Too often we actually praise God without God in mind. We worship feelings. We love to worship the feeling that we get from worship. I've been guilty of that too. How many times have you sung the lyrics to a song and years later you realize, man, I never actually knew what this song was about. I was listening to something the other day, I'm like, man, this song is dope. I mean, I've been listening to it for like 10 years though. What a privilege it is to have an audience with God. That enough should stir praise in your heart. That the God of all creation who formed the universe and everything in it, not only is he mindful of us, but he listens to us. Not only does he listen to us, he, take, he takes pleasure in our praise. Not only does he take pleasure in our praise, but through our praise, he takes up his throne and extends his grace and dominion to all peoples, and by doing so, revealing his glory in the face of Jesus the Messiah. And so we sing songs of joy to the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We sing praises about his excellence. Sing praises about his grace and mercy. We sing praises about his salvation, his provision, and his protection. This goes beyond the mere recognition of God as king. The devil and the demons already know that God is king. That's why I pointed to the emphasis on the media. This is possessive relational language. He is mine, and I am his. This God is my king. Can you say that here today? I guess I'm the only one who can say that here today. This leads us to verse 5, which says, God has gone up with a shout. He has been enthroned upon the praises of his people, the praises of a thousand generations. The CSB says that God ascends among shouts of joy, the Lord, with the sound of the trumpet. The point here is the Lord has been magnified and lifted on high as he is surrounded by the praises of his people, which has carried him and seated him on his holy throne. Is that not encourage you to praise the Lord. However, he's not simply the ascended king because Israel has crowned him king. He's not simply the ascended king because of our praise. As one commentary makes it clear, he has gone up is in the Hebrew perfect aspect, which does not refer to time as in past, present, or future. Rather, it speaks to an action that has been completed. So this is not about the moment it's taken place, not even how it's taken place. Rather, this is simply speaking to the fact that it has taken place. Much like the ending of verse 9, which says, He is highly exalted. Not He will be, or He has been, but this perfect action, again, speaking to the fact that it has been completed. 
If we believe this passage is simply speaking about God as the ascended king over Israel because Joshua led them into the promised land, you miss the point and the significance of Psalm 47. As one theologian put it, and I agree, Psalm 47 foretells the ascension of Christ in, into heaven and the consequent spread of the gospel. And here we see in his kingdom, with his kingdom, it does not stand on the power of the government or on the power of the army. That's what the Jews were expecting in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem stands on the word of praise and thanksgiving to the lamb who was slain and resurrected for all peoples. And in his kingdom, we see what's going to happen when we look at Philippians 2, 10, and 11. If it doesn't happen now, if the nations and the world doesn't take heed to what the sons of Korah is calling all people to do, what we see in Philippians 2, 10, and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So to the non-believers who are among us today, I want to say thank you for joining us for this worship service. We hope that you come back again. Um, but we want more for you than just what you've experienced here today. We want to invite you to join in the worship with us of the Most High God and recognize Him today as the King of your life. To do it now while there's still time. To confess your sin, to turn from your sin, and when you do, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when you do that, in that very moment, you can have confidence that your new inheritance is kept for you in heaven by God. But to reject this invitation is to accept the wages of your sin, which is death, and to inherit hell instead. And so the call has gone out, don't cover your ears. The call has gone out from the text, don't harden your heart, but instead, cry to God. And the God who hears is the God who saves, and the God who saves is definitely worthy of our praise. Now to my fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, let me close with one final illustration. There was a conference at a Presbyterian church in Omaha, where people were given helium-filled balloons and told to release them at some point in the service when they felt like expressing joy in their hearts. Since they were Presbyterians, they weren't free to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. All through the service, balloons ascended. But when it was over, one-third of the balloons were unreleased. Let your balloons go. Don't allow the fear of man and tradition, don't allow pride or anything else to muzzle your praise. All of us have something to praise God about. Don't rob God of the glory that he deserves. Instead, let's respond to the call here in Psalm 47. Verse 1, praising God with our bodies and our voice, clapping our hands, singing loud, joyful songs to God. We also see this in verse 5. Verse 2, with reverence to him as the king of all the earth, not just our king. Verse 4, as a response to his unmerited love towards us. Verse 6, constantly and continually. Verse 7, not driven by emotion alone, but using wisdom and our mind. In verse 9, in unity. Let your balloon go. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word today. Lord, thank you for this call that you've given us in the text to sing your praises. 
Even if we look crazy in front of other people, whether that's the world or if we look weird in front of our own brothers and sisters who may not feel as comfortable with being emotional. But God, how can we not be emotional with knowing what you have done for us? What we don't deserve, you've ransomed us. You've saved us from the wrath to come. You've laid down your life on the cross for us. And you've given us your righteousness in our, in, in, in our place. And so God, help us to be free to worship. Help us to not look to other places and, and, and make excuses for why we can't just be free to worship you, Lord. You are worthy of praise. Forgive us for the times that we have robbed you of the praise that you rightly deserve. Lord, I pray that you would use this um, sermon today to encourage your body and to just help us to live freely and just to live in confidence and to live in boldness and to worship you freely. And Lord, I just pray that when we do, that you're magnified and you're glorified and that the world knows that there is a king and it's you. In Jesus' name we pray.